Welcome to the AMPA Podcast. My name is Omar Moalem, your host, here to psych you up for the 2018 Alberta Magazines Conference. The event, as always, brings some of our industry's best minds in editorial, design, marketing, and advertising to the beautiful city of Calgary for two days of learning, networking, and a little bit of partying, too. So, leading up to March 8th and 9th, I'm interviewing keynotes that you can meet there. We're going to share tips and wisdom. We're going to talk lots of shop. And in this episode, we're talking shop with Jeremy Leslie. He's the founder of May Culture, which started as a blog in 2003, but has evolved into so much more. Now, some blogs become books, others magazines, some even the premise for a movie. But how many blogs can you name that have become stores? May Culture on London St. John Street is the best place to buy indie magazines, probably in the English-speaking world. It has an online shop, too, even a bike carrier for magazine delivery. And of course, it's also an online journal about the best in print, and it's Jeremy's studio, too. Once art director of the now-defunct British magazine Blitz, Jeremy has developed and designed the literary science magazine Aeon.co and numerous books, including books about magazine culture that he edited and wrote himself. Now, as if he doesn't live and breathe magazines enough, he also organizes the annual Modern Magazine Conference, which leaves me to wonder what can we learn about independent modern magazines today, in this economy, as they say. We're going to talk about that and so much more. Jeremy Leslie joins me via Skype. Hi, Omar. Nice to be with you. You are recording at the May Culture Shop. Yeah, we're uh, here in the heart of London. The studio and the shop are on the same site, so it's uh, there's a, it might be a bit of a, a bit of a hum in the background. You might hear the shop in action. And so, how many magazines are at that shop? We stock about 450 different titles at any one time. Uh, a lot of them are, are maybe biannual or quarterly. So probably across any year, we're, we're stocking something like 600 different titles. Every magazine professional has the one, you know, the magazine uh-huh. that made them fall in love with the medium, the culture. Mine was the Source magazine, the Bible on hip hop. What was yours? Mine was music too, but it goes back a little further. It was It's a magazine that does still exist, albeit in a very different form, and it's the New Musical Express, abbreviated as NME. Uh, it's a weekly music paper here in the UK, which was the, the, the week-to-week Bible of what music to listen to, what, what bands to go and see, black and white, inky, piece of print um for me it was less about the design or the look of it it was more about um just the information it carried the information it shared and i have to imagine the uh community that you felt like you were a part of when you when you read that thing because magazines have always been sort of about building a community of sorts absolutely it's quite hard now to to put it into the context of how essential and how central uh, that magazine or indeed i'm sure uh, the source was for you um Enemy was it, it had the role of, of something like Facebook does today in terms of building community and connecting with like-minded people who wanted to do the same thing and say, share the same music and go and see the same bands. So how did you come to be such a, a bleeding heart magazine enthusiast? You, you started your career in the mid-late 80s. You've continued now for, for 30 years being in one way or another on the leading edge of magazines. And I meet a lot of people who are passionate about print and magazines, but your passion is next level. How did that happen? Uh, well, it, it grew over time. I mean, I mean that uh, when we talk about enemy, that that was the sort of starting point. And uh, but I obviously didn't realize at the time, and it's very easy to join the dots in retrospect. That commitment to that magazine helped me understand the power of 
uh, content and the power of, of of that community building. And then, uh, but there, but there, you know, there were other publications around the same time. There was there was a weekly listings magazine which was broader than just music called City Limits, which I was very devoted to, and which actually that was where I got my first live work experience working in a magazine studio. There was the Face magazine, which was started off kind of as, as a slightly glossier music magazine but quickly caught up with the sort of times and was a more general pop culture magazine the youth culture magazine and it just sort of grew from there I mean I was I was studying design so I was, I was uh, training to be a graphic designer and it became uh, evident to me that through my interest in reading magazines I, I, I'm not sure exactly when it happened but at some point the, the, the kind of penny dropped that actually magazines have to be designed and that I was in a position having studied graphics to 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 take part in that design and the two sort of interests music and, and design sort of came together through magazines and I just got the bug very early on just the you know I was lucky enough to um, get a job as designer at a, a monthly called Blitz magazine which was a sort of uh, proto-indie mag in the sense you know it, it was set up independently thoroughly ind- independent there was no one else on staff that had any design experience so I just sort of stepped into the breach and, and, and made a lot of mistakes but learned a lot let's leap forward 30 years and talk about May culture the store um, obviously it's more than a store but the, the shop itself opened in uh, 2015, in part because you were already curating a digital inventory of sorts through the blog and figured it was just a matter of time before someone was going to open up a brick-and-mortar shop. But also there was a groundswell of independent magazines. Why do you think that started happening, even while the industry revenues and ad sales declined as a whole? Uh, mul- multiple reasons. It's, it's a, I, I do understand it seems to be a paradox that whilst uh, the big publishers in the mainstream are, are, are really struggling, that there's this huge interest in, in, in sort of self-published uh, magazines. And, and, it, and it, on the face of it, it seems to be uh, very paradoxical. But, but I think actually the two are, are very, very tightly in entwined in terms of what what's been going on so uh, I mean the, fir- the first thing to note is that there's always been an independent magazine making culture from the early zines sort of very rough and ready all the way through the 60s and 70s there's been a reason why people sort of start their own magazines for their passion or their fan worship of something or other in the, the last sort of 15 to 20 years it's really sort of taken off in a new direction the, I mean as I say there are multiple reasons so partly uh, I think uh, the technology has enabled and empowered people to to make magazines far more professionally, far more easily. That's not to say they're going to be great magazines. You still, you still need fantastic, you still need good ideas and good executions. But the, uh, we're we're conducting this conversation through Skype and uh, using a laptop uh, at this end, which is exactly the same technology as Vogue or Esquire or name whatever big magazine you want. It's it's affordable to have the same technology on your desk as any big publisher, um, and 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 aim for the same quality. So it's much easier now, uh, and 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 that one that one computer can house uh, writing, designing, photo retouching, preparing for press, and everything, and, and then and then actually preparing the PDF and, and emailing it to the printer. So you need very little now to stand up to the, the big publishers. Certainly my experience in this country is is, is, is that whereas there was once um, 
sometimes formal but often informal process of apprenticeship and learning on the job. There were junior positions that, through which you could learn about uh, some key crafts of making magazines, whether it be um, proofreading or uh, editing or fact-checking or on the design side the kind of the finessing of design a lot of those roles have disappeared now so people that want to start out unless they're lucky their one way into the whole thing is to is to start their own magazine you're right that's a good point and we see that even in alberta of the upstart magazines a lot of them are are highly designed um there's obviously uh more than just a passion for the craft of it all. You you said you have about 600 titles that come through the shop every year. You literally have hands-on experience with all the cutting-edge magazines. I want to know what trends you're seeing and maybe what we can learn from indie magazines today. Well, there are certainly trends in, in, uh, in types of content and a couple of things I'd pick up on. Magazines being published by young women um, expressing their concerns in terms of um, feminism and their, and their outlook and trying to state uh, an alternative uh, viewpoint from, from, from their angle. I think that's a, a boom area. Right, an example uh, uh, of that would be like repost? You have the gentleman and repost, both of the are the two kind of big successful titles in that area. But there's there's a whole tranche of, of other magazines of a, a slightly newer and, and sort of coming along in their trail. Things like Galdem and Girls Club. Underlying all this is the key fact of all of this, which I think often gets overlooked in, in, in people's assumptions about what this is about, uh, is, is that this young people making these magazines. Then it's, There are people who are older, and, and there are some people who are very experienced in the industry who have turned to make their own magazine in order to um, keep their interest going, but but, the, but it's a young person's game. It's the young people making those, and, and so I think you get, you're, you're getting young women who are hugely critical and tired of the mainstream women's press and wanting to create their alternatives. So I find that a very interesting trend. And then similarly, with the, with the same sort of um, uh, age group, there are a tranche of magazines dealing with um, mental health, which I think, again, reflects the times we live in in terms of how that generation of people are, are finding their lives affected oh, by such matters. What, what would be a good example of that? Certainly one of the best examples is a, is a magazine from called Anxi, which is published from San Francisco, uh, and there's another one from Berlin called Torchlight, um, and these are really, really, you know, they sell well. They're very, they're very positive, but they they're helping people with their problems. Both of those come together, and I would judge it as a trend in terms of, you know, helping people improve their lives. So in in a way, it's what magazines have already done. But I think a lot of the big magazines have sort of lost sight and turned into lifestyle, aspirational objects rather than actually helping people. So as far as design and uh, more of the tactile stuff that makes mm-hmm. print print, what are you seeing there? There's so much happening there. I mean, I think, you know, we, we, we have a phrase we use, which is magazine which is the sort of taking advantage uh, of, of print and all that print can offer in terms of special effects and different types of papers and the way that it engages more than just the sense of, of sight. You know, we, we talk about reading magazines and we talk about reading our iPhone and, and that sort of assumes it's just about the eyes. And um, with the iPhone, even though you're using your hands very deliberately to touch, it's, it's a very, very familiar, singular approach in terms of touch. It's really just really only addressing a sight, whereas in, in print, it's a very sensual experience. It's, it's interesting to see how magazines engage that. So 
one of the things that I, I'm, I always point out is that you know when you look at a website and you look, I mean, if you even if you look at our online shop website, all the all the magazine covers that are on display appear to be more or less the same size because they all get kind of uh, sort of squeezed through the same system to make you know just a nice little row of same sized images. In in real life, every magazine is a slightly different size. Some are much bigger than others. Some are much smaller. Some are narrower. Some are wider. They can have different types of paper. They can have different mixtures of papers. This is a hugely important part of it. And I think you know one one of the sort of touchstone elements of of this whole scene was the response to the commoditization of the mainstream in terms of all using the same cheap glossy papers. When magazines were were in their heydays in in the you know in the late nineties and early two thousands, um, and I say heyday in terms of just commercial success, Absolutely, there was yeah. a homogeny to it all. Yeah, um, not yeah. just in the in the size and the paper stock but even in the way that magazines look and it you know it, it got very stuck and, and i think um you know so a, a large response of the independent scene was initially to use really thick lush matte stock paper which was very very different very deliberately different to what what you were seeing in, in your corner shop but now now it's getting much more mixed up so now there's a kind of um for some publishers some independent publishers that kind of big map heavy map bookish paper and, and the big thick spine and everything this is all now regarded by some as slightly um old news and now people are, are getting back to sort of thinner paper and more slightly more um relaxed approach to what you know to, to to the to the physical side what's interesting is in in terms of cover designs when i when i started in the industry about um 10 11 years ago we talked a lot about the rules you know the the rules of the of the subject sort of waist mm-hmm. up eye contact we talked about how um odd numbers on covers were more interesting than, than uh-huh. even numbers and using the plus sign and the uh-huh. kind of headlines that worked we talked about rules that uh, that work and now that the industry has been um, financially struggling as much as it has we're talking about breaking rules we we are faced again by this huge paradox and that is that whilst on the one hand the business model is really really challenged uh, that's actually released the creativity and now rather than people being sort of secure in the rules and anxious not to break the rules and therefore lose money there is no money to lose uh, so that people are much braver there's they're, they're, they're stepping out and trying trying things because they might work rather than uh, denying things because they're scared they won't work that makes sense to me how the lucrativeness of an art form can free up the industry for more for the most passionate creators. It reminds me of a comparison that Andrew Lasowski, also a magazine aficionado from the UK, mm-hmm. uh, a comparison that he made about watches. He told me that cell phones have rendered them obsolete, but the watches made today are better than ever. I like the way that sounds, but I also wonder if this means that the magazine medium is at risk of becoming a medium for fetishists or almost like an inadvertent trade magazine. Beautiful photography and design for professional photographers and designers. Is that a realistic concern? Yeah, I think you should always be concerned about you worry that you're making and selling magazines that are only going to be looked at by other people that are making and selling magazines. But the reality is is that's not really the case. I think, you know, there are some of these magazines now are cutting through and and developing real genuine businesses. Largely, you know, with these people doing stuff out of passion and then, you know, if they're lucky they, they, they find that they can convert that into a genuine business uh, and, and at that point you know once you're sort of selling 20 to 40,000 copies then you, you, you're 
you know, you, you're not a huge publisher in the sense of the old-fashioned publishing um, houses, but you've got a significant audience and a significant party to whom you're responsible. Your site has a roundup of the year's best magazines, and one of them is called Migrant, which is a a meditation on migration. And what's cool about it is that from the get-go, they promise six issues, no more, no less. And it reminds me of how podcasts are doing more serialized shows instead of episodic series. Absolutely. That after after a while, they could lose an audience's interest. And, And looking at the rest of the best of the 2017 list, they're all relatively new, which is which is awesome. But uh, it does also suggest that maybe even the best magazines don't have staying power. Even Lucky Peach met its untimely end this year, though maybe it wasn't untimely. Maybe readers just felt like it ran its course. Are series magazines one possible? Yes, feature? I think they are. I think there's there's two reasons for that. One is there is this kind of box set. Um, sensibility, as you say, both through through TV shows and and podcasts, where you can sort of almost kind of you, you talk about binging on a subject and then it ends and you move on to the next thing. And and there is there is a trend towards towards that to some extent. But I think that the other thing that uh, links to that is is this idea that print counters the the kind of endless scope of the internet where you just disappear from rabbit hole to rabbit hole and you never quite get to the end of the subject that you're looking at i think one of the great things about magazines whether they're series magazines in the sense of they're being part of a a limited series whether they're that or not is you know a magazine is um any one issue is it has a limited number of pages that you can fill and there are a limited number of words you're going to get on each of those pages and then it's not you know it's not far from there to get to the point where actually you limit the number of issues of the magazine itself so it's a sort of very distinct uh uh planned schedule of information that you're going to share you don't know quite what the content will be but you know what the subject matter you're going to investigate is and you announce that ahead of time and then you work through it i think that's that's an absolutely very useful kind of premise to work to migrant do it there's a design magazine called works that work that has just published its 10th issue and that was always going to be its final issue Um, i think it's a very interesting idea i think sometimes magazines overextend themselves and carry on too long yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, I, I know that you're going to be talking about uh, a lot more trends at the conference in March. So I, mm-hmm. I want to leave the, the trend talk as far as print goes there. But who should we be looking at as examples of doing the digital magazine well right now? Uh, the, the, well, it's a very it's an interesting question. It's an in, interesting kind of uh, name uh, description. I mean, digital magazines, uh, uh, there was the, the time... Uh, I forget my dates, but maybe five years ago, when the iPad app promised much on the digital um, in the digital respect in terms of magazines, I, I struggle slightly with the idea of digital magazines per se. I think what we're really, you know, we've moved beyond apps and and and, and other kind of more magazine orientated environments towards websites that happen to offer mag- magazine style content, whether they're actually magazines or whether they're websites i don't know i think they're probably just websites there there is there is fantastic content online without a doubt and that some of them does come does arrive from traditional publishers and i think some of the um the areas of of big publishing that that are doing really really well at the moment are doing well on the back of digital uh, digital distribution so um you're looking at some of the news weeklies and and uh, products like the new yorker the economist 
Over here we have a satirical magazine called Private Eye. Um, that, given the um, the overall kind of political uh, sense of challenge to what has been the liberal consensus, I think there's a, all these magazines that are, that are responding to the challenge to the liberal consensus and the, the political kind of background, both in you know in in the US and, and here in Europe. Uh, I think you're a little more secure in Canada, but um, you can correct me on that if For necessary. Uh, a lot of those magazines, you know, they're, they're very successful in print, but they're also very successful digitally. And so you can look to those for uh, great content that has been transferred online very successfully. There are, uh, you know, other uh, younger brands like Vice are doing very well. Uh, and I think there's lots to, to learn from them. And I think a lot of people, I know of several kind of... Uh, small to medium-sized magazines here that are definitely kind of very interested in, 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 in what's happening with, with the model of people like Vice. The business model is the challenge. The, create, the creative model is fine at the moment. It's, 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 I think there's always been creativity and excitement and innovation in terms of how we present ourselves and how what you can do with magazines. But right now, uh, it's, it's, it's particularly exciting. Uh, and does, does, do you think that the audience is um, craving a lot of creativity. I know that sounds like a cynical question, but I mean, you mentioned um, apps before and apps were uh, hyper creative. Uh, you know, they were doing some really cool stuff, but in the end, it turned out that users just wanted like a responsive design. They just wanted a, a website that they can load from Twitter, from Facebook, on their phone, on their computer, maybe on their iPad, though I think fewer and fewer people uh, even even carry around iPads. I, and I and I sometimes wonder if we wasted time on that. If our industry lost some traction and some interest by investing so heavily in apps, when it just it was it, know, it was an absolute waste of time and a waste of money and resource of every sort. And it was it, it was clear to me that that was going to be the case. And uh, it was it was it, it was just it was just absurd. It was it was. Um, uh, it was really sad, and that, you know, even you know, I did an interview with Scott Daddich, who was one of the, uh, as in his role at Wired magazine, was one of the, uh, the people that gave birth to the Adobe DPS system. And I, I you know, I remember getting an iPad and, and looking at it for the first time, and the only magazine app I could get at that stage was the, was the Wired one, uh, and it was fantastic. It had all this video and animation, and it was just unbelievable. It was so exciting, but then when you actually, you know, when I actually got my hands on some of the you know the chance to actually try and emulate that aside from whether anybody wanted it nobody could afford to create it it was just wasn't possible to replicate that without the kind of endless budget that a huge apple adobe and condé nast funded yeah yeah it only worked for the condé nast and the hearsts of the world like even the biggest publishers in Canada, their iPad apps were relatively tame compared to what you were seeing out of the yeah. um, out of the Condé Nast group. Yeah, it was wishful thinking. It was always dreamland. So, so, but but now, now you know, we all have our favorite news news sites. We have our favorite sources of information. Uh, in my mind, the best ones happen to be ones that come from publishing um, organizations that have at the heart of what they do a printed product. They still have a kind of an understanding of core editorial values, which have been transferred to the digital realm and work accordingly. There are newspapers that are, um, you know, like the New York Times and the LA Times and sometimes the Globe and Mail. When they have a special project here in Canada, the Globe and Mail will do something that is, um, you know, hyper visual and it's just it's altogether great reading experience. 
with you know video and audio mm-hmm. and uh in the last episode we talked to uh melanie diesel who was on the sponsored content side of the new york times and she did that great orange is the new black uh story that was you know uh multimedia um but then there's also these little independent magazines like if if you'll allow me to call the magazines like the atavist and aeon which you helped uh develop as well and they have showed that no matter what you're using, the browser, your phone, there is a very user-friendly way to tell stories in a dynamic uh, way as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and it's not about adding tons of uh, animations and trying to, or trying to emulate print instead of having pages that you turn or anything. It's just, it's about, I think, you know, you mentioned the New York Times. I think there are other examples, but, but they in particular are very good at, they, they still leverage the best they can out of what they do in the print product with their magazines in particular, but they also work very hard. They're experimenting with uh, augmented reality and VR. As you say, the Globe and Mail are doing the same thing in your country, and the Guardian here are trying some of the same things. Uh, it's, it's about getting the most out of the particular channel that you're using, and I think that's the real key lesson here, and that's where the, the iPad went wrong, because it was... It, it was attempting and promising to recreate the print experience on a screen which is all i mean it's like you know it's just uh, it's a crazy concept so we've established that digital can do some uh dynamic things that print magazines can do and we've also seen magazine sales decline so so i wonder then what what is the relevance of print-based magazines today and i'm you know i'm not saying that print is dead i think the idea that print is dead is dead uh, the the uh, uptick of book sales has at least proven that. Um, but what is the relevance of print-based magazines today? I guess there are two types of relevance. There's there's, there's relevance in 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 depth of engagement, and there's relevance in 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 breadth of of engagement. And I think uh, mediums come and go, but they never disappear. And I think uh, you know you'd be hard pressed to come up with a form of media uh, with a medium uh, that simply got replaced by a new medium that's not how it works and and things always kind of are there to surprise you uh you know who, who would have thought that the one thing that the internet would do was to was to uh make radio one of the most popular formats in the whole world um that, that, that i mean if, if somebody had said back in the 50s but as tv was taking over that radio was going to be as, as 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 important and valid as it is today you know, whatever, 60, 70 years later, um, they, they would, the yeah, exactly. Just it, things don't go to plan in that way. It's not as simple. Um, but it's what brings you to life. And I think it, I see young, young graduates, both journalists and, and designers now, and they, and they want to make print. They want to, they want to make stuff that has some sort um, of actual value. And it's, it matters more to them that people respond to what they do and, um, and love it than, a million people see it and sort of put uh, uh, sort of reluctantly cope with it if you understand me so i mean if i go if i go back 10 years everybody wanted to build a website because it was still quite novel and new that's over now this it's the the, the 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 web is just there it's like electricity or air or whatever it's everyone relies on it my business and every single publisher that i'm, I'm stocking could not survive as a as a as a valid entity without the internet it's a vital part of it, but you just take it for granted. Everybody has a Facebook page or a blog or a Tumblr, or they've got they've got their Twitter feed. They've got all this, and they take it for granted, and it's not very interesting. What they want to do is then move on to make something which they can have more control of and which is more exciting, and that tends to be print. 
Well, I think that's the best note to finish this on. Jeremy Leslie, I'm looking forward to seeing you in Calgary. Thanks so much for doing the podcast. Uh, thank, thanks for um, calling up and having this chat. I really enjoyed it. I'm very, very excited about uh, coming to visit and looking forward to um, meeting everyone out there. See you soon. And thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. If you want to learn more from Jeremy, come to Calgary on March 8th and 9th for the 2018 Alberta Magazine Conference. He'll be there presenting a keynote on what we can learn from independent magazines, as well as a breakout session on keeping magazines dynamic. And he'll be there along with Popular Science's online director, Amy Schellenbaum, former Cottage Life editor and publisher, Penny Caldwell, and one of the sharpest minds in native advertising, Melanie Diesel, who you can hear in the last episode of this podcast. Conference passes are on sale right now, so take advantage of the early bird pricing by going to albertamagazines.com. My name is Omar Moalam. I hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to check with the AMPA website or subscribe to iTunes for more interviews with our industry's finest. Ciao for now.